Human health is so deeply rooted in science fiction, many medical devices have been inspired by books and television. Looking at sci-fi, we have some very optimistic ideas of the future and health. And we also have some very cynical, worrisome ideas, to the point where the tragic alternatives of scientific progress are typically categorized as horror. In the real world, it's hard to keep up with health science news, whether it's good or bad. Of course, the truth is somewhere in between. Welcome to Fact and Science Fiction. I'm your host, Carly, and this week, we're discussing medicine and science fiction. So this week, instead of tackling the topic myself, um, I wanted to bring Jess back on the show. Um, She was a co-host on the Gender and Sexuality episode, uh, but she is also a nurse and pre-med student, and so she offered a different perspective on healthcare and human health than I had. When we were researching this episode, um, what kind of felt like routine, regular technologies that she uses every day, I was just kind of blown away by um, because I don't really have a lot of experience in healthcare. When I visited family in hospitals, it never really um, was a they didn't, serious matter. Right. So um, I definitely wanted her perspective. So uh, welcome to the show again, Jess. Hey, good to be back. <laughs> So let's just dive in. A lot of what we've talked about in previous episodes have kind of had a, a a strong connection to health, whether it was in the first episode and we talked about epigenetics and, and gene editing as well as cloning could have medical applications. Um, in the second episode, we talked about uh, corporations and CRISPR-Cas9 and the like patent dispute about that technology as well as the virtual reality episode, um, I talked about um, prosthetics. So almost the easiest way to get a grant for anything in science is to show that there's an application either for human medicine or for the military. So if the research is going to be in medicine, it gives a lot of fodder to people in who are writing sci-fi to scan through and speculate. Okay. Yeah. Well put. So um, a lot of research that's done, if it has a medical application, can get more funding. And um, I think it definitely captures the interests of the public more, um, as well as sci-fi creators. So sci-fi has predicted, if not inspired, a lot of medical breakthroughs. So I'm going to talk about some speculative ideas for the future that's kind of popped up a lot in sci-fi. And then Jess, you can talk about what's the closest we have in practice. Okay. So um, one of the cool things that I read when I was doing research um, for this episode was that in 1942, Robert Heinlein wrote a story about a disabled inventor named Waldo Jones, who invented a remote-controlled robotic hand, and his story inspired real-life inventions of robotic arms for working with nuclear materials, and they were called Waldos because of hmm. that, and I thought that was pretty cool. But now, now we have robotic arms for really precise surgeries. Yeah, um, the use of da Vinci's are pretty widespread, even though it's a little bit controversial, just because while they can decrease mortality and they can make what would normally be an invasive procedure 
less invasive because you don't have to, let's say, open up the entire thoracic cavity to see everything, but it may be a surgery that's a bit too much to just do laparoscopically, which is where they just send in a tiny camera with a little grippy clippy bit to, you know, do biopsies or cauterize a small bit. And eventually you can perform an entire surgery from just a small area. But as useful as they are, they've got a pretty high learning curve. I think I heard it normally takes like 12 to 15 surgeries before a physician really feels masterful with it. That's 12 to 15 lives. So that's a lot of responsibility for someone to take just to practice a new technique when the old one does work well, if not perfectly. So um, for the listeners who aren't really familiar with what a da Vinci looks like, um, do doctors like control it with like a glove with a joystick? It depends to an extent on what tools are being used. The generic image you're going to see of one are like several kind of mantis-looking arms all poised over a patient or a surgical field, already just kind of stab in there and start cutting. But the surgeon will usually kind of be off a few feet away looking at a screen because you do have the camera looking directly in and scanning the patient. It kind of depends on what's being done. I think that most often it is almost joystick-like, but you also are hearing them used instead of um, thoracic spreaders, like, well, in invasive surgeries, instead of just the regular old clamps to hold open a chest cavity and split it. Um, the machine will, in a way that's much more controlled than a mechanical tool and a human could, slowly spread the rib cage apart. Ah. And, I mean, that's going to require kind of a different controller. I, I'm not an expert. I'm not a surgeon. Never got to play with one. Oh, that's okay. I just wanted some more background because I think I've seen pictures of them, but I wasn't really sure what they looked like up close. The ones I've seen, it was a while ago and it was more of a mechanical input while you had information on the screen in front of you, but user interfaces change even faster than the actual tools, so... Mm. We very may well have ones that their new utilizations might be more commonly used with almost touch screens of, wow. you know, just kind of a... A pinch zoom? <laughs> well, I mean, it uses a camera. and mm -hmm. So um, another example would be prosthetic limbs. And I talked a little bit about it in the virtual reality episode where using virtual reality, people could perceive uh, feeling in their prosthetic limbs. So prosthetics are a big part in science fiction. Um, for example, in Star Wars, um, you know, Darth Vader is mostly machine, is what they say. Um, Luke had a prosthetic hand um, that that looked lifelike. So just where are we with prosthetics? Well, they Non-mechanical or animated prosthetics are extremely common. Um, people will have those fitted while they're still in intensive care. It's almost commonplace, and a lot of the work there is with physical therapy and occupational therapy and rehab to help people 
learn to manage using a limb that is not a limb. It doesn't have any touch, so they can't tell if they're knocking it against a door except by just their awareness of the rest of their limb in space. So if you close your eyes and you can tell whether you're and put your arm out in front of you, you can tell whether your palm is face up or face down. If you have an amputation above the shoulder and you're rotating a prosthetic, that feeling the proprioception may not be there naturally. You may have to train yourself to start thinking of this. The goal is to have more natural and animated limbs that can move with our thoughts rather than just take the place of and be a tool. It can be an actual limb. And there has been expensive robotics that have been built that give people the ability to open and close a hand with thought or muscle tension in a limb. But we're nowhere near having those mass produced yet or affordable. Yeah. Um, Kind of related to that um, is um, exoskeletons uh, like an Iron Man and RoboCop are in development now. I think it's one of those examples like you said uh, it's for like military uses. They're like motorized full body prosthetic suits that kind of go around your legs and midsection. Um, I just saw a video about that. Um, another cool thing um, that we see in science fiction is 3D bioprinting. You know, the exoskeleton thing makes me think of the lifts that we use for patients that are unsteady. Hmm. They plant their feet on something, they're helped to stand, and it provides bracing at different parts of their body so they can, you know, transfer from a bed to a toilet safely with one person rather than requiring several people to help walk them someplace when they're aware but just currently too weak and need that rehab of moving. So kind of a really Mm low-tech exoskeleton, but same concept of a metal and hydraulic framework to help strengthen the human body. Yeah, totally. Okay, uh, so back to 3D bioprinting. So the movie in the 90s, Gattaca, had like characters fully like printed out in the 3D bioprinter. Um, we see 3D printing in um, the show Westworld. That's how they um, repair and create the androids. Um, so what do we have there? Well, I never really saw Gattaca. What were they using 3D printing for in that? Like people. Like full head-to-toe body, this is a new human, like cloning almost? I think so. I haven't seen it either, but it was talked (laughs) about in pretty much every, like, connection between medicine and science fiction. Um, Everybody talked about Gattaca. We should watch it. Yeah, I know. Well, it's not on any of the services we pay for. I've checked. Rude. (laughs) Okay. But Westworld yeah. is great. And the way they use 3D printing is just anytime one of the androids are injured, they're repaired with new organs, which is basically what we want to do with people who need organ transplants. It's almost a lottery to be able to find a match in a healthy person and then be able to get consent from the family to donate the organs and then to get the organs to the right patient and then to get a successful transplant and a 
well-practiced, but still extraordinarily difficult surgery. And then the years and years of trying to make sure that the tissue isn't rejected. Have to constantly take medications to tamp down your immune system. That way your antibodies don't attack the antibodies of the new organ. It's it's a new lease on life. It's absolutely amazing. But being able to 3D print organs would save so many lives and would really free up so many resources. When there is a patient who's going to donate organs in the ICU, it even before they leave to go to the transplant hospital, it's a massive use of resources. Someone from an outside company is working as a liaison with family, the physicians at the other facility, the pers- any of the people who may be able to receive the organs, getting everything organized. Um, it requires, at least where I work, um, brain death has to be declared not by any physician, but specifically a neurologist or a neurosurgeon, although brain death testing can be done at bedside by anyone skilled. You'll just have policies vary, but that means another specialist assigned to the case at my hospital. You have nurses and respiratory therapists and intensive care physicians all massively monitoring the ventilator, electrolytes, combing through past medical history to make sure that, you know, there's no signs of cancer. Um, there wasn't unknown alcoholism that might have torn up the liver that we didn't know about, and that's how this guy got into a terrible car crash. It's a really, really heavy caseload before it even gets to the transplant. Mm. So if all we could do is just 3D print a new organ and give someone a new set of lungs. My Uncle Bill was on a transplant list for 10 years. He would still be alive today if that technology was there. Yeah. I know that they're working on it. Mm Mm-hmm. And they're able to 3D print more simple organs like skin for skin grafts, but... Being able to transplant something like a double lung Mm -hmm. or a liver, we're a ways off. The next one, which... So, science fiction kind kind of predicted us talking to each other via, like, flat screens, I think. Um, Star Trek started it, you know, but it's kind of been around like long distance video communication has been a part of science fiction for decades. Um, I wanted just to talk about telemedicine because I've never been in a situation in which it was used. It still sounds kind of crazy to me, but it's kind of come up a lot lately. So uh, um, I wanted just to talk about it. It can take a lot of forms, not just you face to face via screen with a physician, but even the first time I encountered anything that could be considered telemedicine would 
be when my grandpa would literally have his pacemaker checked over the phone. Hmm. It would basically have a dial-up connection and... (laughs) (laughs) All right, everything's fine. But now I see it used very frequently in ICUs. Um, So I see telemedicine a lot in something that our kind of brand name is called EICU. There's a remote monitoring service that our hospital uses where a handful of physicians and ICU nurses 24-7 are monitoring all of the intensive care patients. Um, They've got a constant feed of their vital signs from the bedside monitors like we do on these like big multi-panel screens in front of them at their workstations. And then they have extremely high definition cameras that they can use to camera into a room, control it with a joystick, can hear the patient, the patient can hear them, can zoom in or out. Frequent application is night shift. You know, there's not as much hustle and bustle or physicians around. If a code happens or you need an order for a patient and you need a physician at bedside or you need someone to look at a patient, but it may not be quite the thing if you need someone who's there to physically intervene, you can hit the button, they'll camera in, and they can do a visual assessment of the patient and can talk with you about it. It's also used to... We've got a shortage of neurologists in the world, and a lot of these critical access hospitals need to be able to accurately tell if a patient is having a stroke because the intervention's so time-sensitive. So a telemedicine neurologist can camera in after reviewing a CT scan and do a neuro exam on a patient. Nothing's ever the same as being able to be there in person, at least nothing yet, where you can have them squeeze your hands and feel any difference or any tremors or weakness. But these can, these cameras can zoom in far enough that you can tell, are the pupils slightly irregular in shape or is one dilated more than another? That's pretty, pretty high def. They're really high def. And so it can be the difference between someone getting an order for TPA to help break up a clot before they're shipped off to a stroke center or needing to be shipped and hoping they get there in time to receive that medicine because you've only got a window of a few hours to administer it. Mm -hmm. Also, we don't have translators in these little rural parts very often, and we have translator services through the screens. That way there's an actual visual human who can look and see gestures and It's a bit more reassuring than a phone service, which is the second, which is just above having no one trying to make faces at each other and pointing at things. Another example from uh, Star Trek was um, the idea of the tricorder, which was a mobile diagnostic device. Um, Why am I saying that? Like, no one knows what Star Trek is. (laughs) Uh, It was a 
um, a mobile diagnostic device. So, and it was non-invasive, like you just take like a little laser or whatever and rub it on somebody's head and you could tell um, if they were ill and what they had. And that has like captured the imagination of so many people that tech companies are competing for millions of dollars to create basically the best working um, tricorder. So I went on the website of like the second place and it was could be read, like analyzed on your smartphone. It wasn't all on a mobile device. It was like a mobile kit that you could, um, like put, you know, blood and urine samples in. But the, the mobile phone had like a, like could read temperatures and read some, some, um, diagnostics. But that was like the best working prototype. I have a lot of trouble imagining day-to-day medicine without being able to do non-invasive imaging. And they're really not old technologies. I mean, x-ray's been around for quite a while, but I've used ultrasound just when putting in IVs before. Like, something that I can do simply by feel. I've been able to do under more adverse and difficult circumstances just by non-invasively visualizing a vein and then threading an IV catheter into it. Also, once you use it to get a view of a co-worker's baby before she went for her actual ultrasound the next day because she couldn't wait. Aww. What I find interesting about science fiction, um, with like a lot of, you know, speculation of the future, it can either be utopian and dystopian with like very little um very little in between so um like in a lot of science fiction they it exists in this world in which all diseases have been cured um or there's or like medicine is pretty much instant um there's a lot of instant healing like robots will sew you up and um to the point where like We've reached immortality. And then we have, you know, true dystopians, which are sometimes categorized as horror. Like there are a lot of pandemics or epidemics. One example that we looked at was The Last of Us. Which is such a great game. It's a video game, so I don't know anything about it. So just (laughs) take it away. So it's a zombie game of the infectious disease flavor, but the idea is that rather than a zombie virus, it's a cordyceps fungi infection. So cordyceps is a real thing. Go ahead. Yes, it is. I was going to talk about that. Yeah, go ahead. (laughs) Unless you want to, since that's not the game part. No, you, you explain what cordyceps are. So cordyceps are parasitic fungi that will infect, um, Insects. The most famous one is the one that infects ants, but they will, an infected ant will be compelled to climb to a certain height in the jungle canopy, latch on with its mandibles to a stem, and just stay there until it dies as its body basically becomes a husk for the cordyceps fungi to grow out of the back of its skull and release spores everywhere. 
the pictures of <laughs> those um, dead ants with like these stalks coming out of their head and like flowering with these bulbs that will release spores. I mean, it just looks horrible. And their dead eyes have... Ugh. And I haven't even made her play The Last of Us I yet. I don't want to. Um, she thinks it's horrifying when it's ants. Wait until <laughs> it's like someone with a fungus face running out of you from a dark warehouse in the apocalypse. No. So it's kind of jumping on the idea of how pathogens can mutate to affect different species. Like each cordyceps really focuses on a specific insect. And the idea of a disease jumping from insect to human is not too far out there. Mm -hmm. Think of tick-borne pathogens. We have way more crossover with viruses that can hit us coming from birds or mammals. Mm -hmm. Insects are really far off. A lot of um, diseases have kind of popped up. We can um, go across countries in hours. And so a lot of diseases that were um, fine in one place once introduced to a new population can um, negatively affect us and spread. Um, an example that was kind of recent was Zika, which I studied a little bit. I didn't study a little bit. I did my thesis on <laughs> in graduate school. So Zika was in um, was in Africa, was in um, Ghana at first, and the people there just remembered it as like, oh, I just, you know, had a flu, had flu symptoms, and then I got better. Um, but when it uh, kind of traveled to South America and um, North America, like people were getting really sick and it was starting to affect, um, you know, fetuses and starting to affect, uh, starting to transmit reproductively and, um, they weren't sure how long it was going to stay in the system. So, um, and that was because it, w- it went to a new population and they didn't have the immune system to fight it off. So, uh, and, and these kinds of illnesses will keep popping up because of how much we travel now as, um, as humans. So like there was Zika, there was, um, swine flu, avian flu, SARS, so that was kind of that's kind of like a dystopian view of science fiction. Um another aspect uh that's kind of popped up in um science fiction and speculative fiction is uh like a wave of infertility. Um recently The Handmaid's Tale was all about it. Uh, the film Children of Men also took place in the future in which people couldn't have children. And so the main character has to protect a pregnant teenager. Um, so I think that's kind of an interesting um, take on like an, an epidemic. Um, what would happen to us if we couldn't have children? Felt like we had to control the people who did have children. Ugh, it's just awful. Yeah. Luckily, we're kind of at the opposite of that. We have to do all we can to not accidentally have kids. And when people have fertility issues, we have a lot of treatments. They're not perfect and they may take some time, but they're actually really available. Yeah. I really, I think um, IVF or in vitro fertilization is really Mm -hmm. cool. Hormone therapies. Mm -hmm. um, There's just a lot to do. 
Okay, well, that was our discussion on medicine and sci-fi. Thank you for listening. Find the pod on iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate and review on Apple Pods. Because she has no reviews yet. I don't have any reviews yet. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Fact and Sci-Fi. Um, check out other cool content at factandsci-fi.blogspot.com. And lastly, thanks for listening. Thanks.